When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And with help from Albertsons, it doesn't have to be the most stressful. Stop in for great deals on holiday favorites so you can stretch your budget and celebrate more. Pick up fresh, boneless, skinless chicken breasts or thighs, just $1.59 a pound when you buy a value pack of three pounds or more. And get General Mills cereal 10.7 to 13 ounces, selected varieties, $1.57 when you buy two. Tastier meals, sweeter deals, happier holidays. Albertsons, it's just better. Are women sports journalists treated differently on social media than men? How similar is Steph Curry to Michael Jordan? And how did David Blatt's Israeli roots influence him in Cleveland? The only question, the left, only question is, left is, say it with me. Say it with me. You win. You win. Hey, sports fans. Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. I am pleased to welcome on the show today Becky Griffin, who is an Israeli columnist for Kalkalist, which is basically the Wall Street Journal for Israel and does a lot of sports writing and observational stuff on Twitter for the NBA. And always nice to hear a different voice about the game. So, Becky, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, well, thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm glad that we are able to interact in a, in, a, in a civil manner. It seems like there are times on Twitter where uh, people <laughs> will, will get into, uh, or certainly you're going to let them know how you feel pretty directly. Uh, have you always had um, a, a voice uh, on Twitter like that where, you know, you're not going to screw around if you don't like what the, someone's going <laughs> to tweeting to you? Well, first of all, I think that's a very Israeli trait. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like um, Israelis in general, uh, we're very blunt and we're very direct people. So I think that that's kind of like uh, probably where it stems from, you know, that kind of culture. Mm -hmm. um, to answer your very specific. Yes, I have always been, um, <laughs> I guess, not afraid to uh, tweet my mind, I guess you would say. Or, you know, I have a I have my own column, a sports column, which clearly, um, I mean, even in America, there was recently uh, this whole campaign about how uh, female sports writers get more online abuse for uh, basically saying an opinion. So um, I guess oh. it comes with the territory. Wait, I missed this report. So you're saying that there's like a study or something that's going on that says that female report, uh, sports reporters get more views? Yes. There, there was this whole thing um, where they had like people who were writing these nasty tweets to uh, sports writers in America, basically read their tweets oh, out to them in front of their face and and basically, um, you know, kind of understand how rude what they were saying. But, you know, there's a lot of studies about online harassment and bullying and, you know, who get, who gets bullied more. And, and why? And I mean, I guess if you think about it, when it comes to, you know, anybody who has an opinion on Twitter is, you know, may one day mm -hmm. be on the other side of a lot of people who are not really happy with that opinion. Yeah. You know, it comes with the territory. And, and I guess when it comes to sports, 
a lot of sports fans are guys and not all of them are all that happy with, you know, girls having an opinion on, on their, on their sports or female sports or anything that, that they go that, you know, that they think that we should not have an opinion on. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, I, I, I'm sorry. I did watch this video where they, uh, in case anyone listening didn't see it, where they literally would have the, the woman writer, uh, sports writer would give a, ma- a man across from her tweets to read that were tweeted at her. And it's some of the most vile, horrible things. And to see the men squirm having to, you know, he's like, do I, do I really have to read this? And it was re- horrible stuff that you would never say to a man, uh, a male sports writer. Um, you're right. That, that is just, uh, is, 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 uh, I guess it's everything that's, that's bad about the Internet, right? And sort of this, this notion of being, um, you know. Uh, well, you know what? When people say the Internet, it's like, you know, there are people behind the Internet. You know, there are people behind these tweets behind the online harassment, you know, it's society in general, anything, you know, I, um, anything somebody writes on, on, online, um, you know, they think that maybe somebody else is not reading it or there's not somebody else there, which is kind of why I believe in feeding the trolls because, you know, sometimes when you do reply to them, they, they, they realize that, you know, wait a minute, there's somebody there and, um, you know, and maybe that wasn't really appropriate, but I think also, you know, sometimes it's just a way to show an audience that there is this kind of online harassment, that not all the debates on Twitter are um, polite or even oh, yeah. appropriate, you know, whether it's, um, you know, something direct to, directed uh, to female sports writers or directed, I, I mean, I can get a lot of, of vile, horrible things just because I'm Israeli. You know, if something happens back home and, you know, there's a war, then, you know, I get attacked just for that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and sometimes I show that or reply to that with a lot of humor most (laughs) of the time. Um, Just because, you know, there's some people that say that, you know, anti-Semitism doesn't exist anymore. So I think sometimes it's also a way to to show people. on my Facebook in Israel, I replied, like some people, I, I wrote this op-ed and um, some people weren't really happy with it. And some people didn't even read the op-ed, but they they saw like little pieces of it and they started to comment really nasty things on the Facebook page of the newspaper promoting it. So I, I replied to people saying, you're so sweet. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those <laughs> kinds of things. Right. And um and some of them, like, I, I, I made a collage and shamed them on my personal Facebook page. <laughs> okay. And yeah. then um, one of them reached out to me, and, and um, I ended up calling them and having a conversation. And he said the most interesting thing ever. He said, oh, I write, you know, about 200 comments like that a day. And, you know, I never really thought about it, you know, that somebody's on the other side and, you know, I saw when you wrote, oh, that's really sweet. And I felt really bad and I didn't really know what to say. And then, you know, we had this conversation and I asked him, um, did you read my opt-ed? And he said, no. And I said, well, you just spent about 15 minutes on the phone with me talking about like how you reacted to it. So could you do me a favor and dedicate 10 minutes to read it? He was like, sure. And then about a half hour later, he, uh, posted a picture of himself with a sign saying, I read the entire thing. I'm so sorry. 
I love you, Becky, tagged me and posted it on Facebook. Oh, okay. That's sweet. That's sweet. Of course, he's probably now across the street from your apartment every day <laughs> staring at you. <laughs> well, actually, I'm in New York and he's somewhere in Israel and he's okay. also married and I also had a great chat with his wife. So I think on that one, I'm kind of safe. <laughs> All right, good. But, um, <laughs> but I think it was, you know, I think it was just a good example of like sometimes actually replying to people and having a conversation with them actually opens their mind to the fact that, you know, the internet is actually people and you wouldn't say these things to my face if I was walking down the street or if you saw me at a bar, right? right. You keep it to yourself because it's not appropriate. Right. You wouldn't swear at me walking down the street because of something I wrote in a newspaper. Right. right. Oh, I hear you. I mean, there's nothing like a good public shaming. Every once in a while when someone crosses the line with me, I'll quote the tweet and a lot of times it'll, I'll do the same thing. I'll be like, awesome, thanks, you know, or, or I might even have a call to arms to say, let's let everyone know. Like, actually, somebody accused me uh, the other day, which is really hilarious. This is not nearly along the level of what you're talking about, but it's, it happened recently. Uh, they accused me of being a homer for the heat. And I thought that was the funniest thing because if you ever, you know, read the tweets or whatever, the Heat fans, it's like I'm, I'm afraid sometimes that they're outside my door with pitchforks and, and torches. That's how crazy it is. The Heat fans are fanatic. I'll give them that. So you know that too, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I follow some and or like you can see the discussion that happens like, you know, when there's a Heat game on. You know, they, they, the, the heat goes on with the heat fan. You know, oh, yeah. they, they take everything very, very personally. It's really, it's, it's unique, I think. I mean, because you think New York fans and you think um, Laker fans are also, but the heat fans are on a different level. And I, I, I kind of, all, I, not that I would ever understand what it's like to be a woman being yelled at, like we see, like you were mentioning, but I, it, it is as personal and as vile <laughs> sometimes against me, nothing to do with sports. It's like, dude, take this and do that. It's just like, I don't even want to repeat them. And uh, it's, it's like horrible uh, to the point where I almost want to block some of the guys because they, you know, so, so, the, you know, the irony being that here's another guy, a Raptors fan who's clearly thinking that I'm a Heat fan. So I even quoted that one. I'm like, okay, Heat fans, let them know <laughs> what you really think about me being a homer. You know what? If, if, if you're, if you're upsetting both sides, you're doing something right. Yes, I agree. Well, you know, I'm kind of curious because, um, you, you know, how did you become, uh, well, you know what, before we even get into that, let's talk a little bit about like what's going on right now, because I feel like let's do a quick overview. Are you watching the games right now uh, in the playoffs? Or is anything caught in your mind? Have you written any kind of stuff about what's happening in the NBA? Um, I have been watching. I have to admit that I have been. Uh, there were a few games on the West Coast that I fell asleep Okay. towards the end. I oh, have to. Did you miss that 17-point um, overtime? No, that one I saw. Okay. I, I see my body seems to like keep me awake as even under extreme circumstances for the good ones. Okay. <laughs> um, so yes, I, ha I have been. I mean, of course, I watched that. That was. I mean, everybody was watching that. I was. You know, it was like the second um, he was training, and you know, Steph was training. Everybody was like, "Is he gonna play? Is he gonna play?" And you know, and people were asking me, "Would you play him just to finish off this?" So. Yeah, of course, I, I tuned in and, you know, it was overtime with uh, the Miami game and they switched over there because Golden State was, you know, trailing ridiculously in the first quarter. And then all of a sudden they pull Steph into the game. So everybody's like, OK, <laughs> th this is going to be good. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I of course I've been following it. I mean, it's fun every day. They're games, you know. It's kind of like I already my my evenings are set for the next month, and you know, um, I'm actually writing um, because it's more of like like you said, Calculus is more like the Wall Street Journal, and I have a column, so it's like I I less report about like game by game and more maybe a phenomenon. So um, so right now I'm, I'm working on something about uh, Steph, okay. uh, you know, uh, being the unanimous, unanimous MVP. And um, But I was also, like, I'm tying it into basically him being so accessible and how that's a totally new thing versus the LeBrons and the Kobe Bryants and, and um, stuff like that, which may be part of why he was voted, you know, unanimously. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, um, we've definitely seen players in the past be rewarded for being nice to the media, right? Uh, you know, Kareem never, you know, he won uh, MVPs but never got uh, unanimous and certainly seemed to struggle with his legacy because he was very aloof. Um, so, yeah, I would say that for sure there seems to be a reward to some degree for being uh, civil, I suppose. Or somebody like Allen Iverson. Yeah. You know, his practice speech, you know, was, was totally taken out of proportion. If everybody, if anybody's ever like, if you go back and actually watch the entire thing, mm -hmm. you know, you can see that like somebody like Allen Iverson might have had a different end of his career or a different kind of legacy if maybe he had a different relationship with the media. With that said, I'm not saying that that is why Steph Curry, you know, is the MVP or anything like that. I mean, he deserved it. He, what he did, I mean, he improved from last year and he was the MVP last year. You know, <laughs> like he, he outdid his himself. He kept breaking record after record this year. Like he kept... He was breaking his own records, his own three-point shooting records. The Warriors broke records. You know, it's like everywhere you look, Steph is breaking a record. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it kind of, you know, and if, if you look at his whole kind of story, it actually makes sense that he would break this record, too, and be the first player in history to get that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess, I mean, it, it's... I don't know if anybody would have said before this season started that, oh, Steph is going to be even better this year. Or, like, I don't know how that indicated any, to anybody that way. or that. The but, Warriors... he was, but nobody ever believed he was – like, that's that's also part of his story. Right. That, yes. You know, like, the general manager of the, of the Warriors, like, before he gave him the award, he was saying, you know, even your own mother – or Steve Kerr was saying it. He was saying, you know – Nine years ago, even your own mother didn't wasn't sure if you would make it in the league. Right. So like that that's part of his story too. That nobody he's always underrated. No matter what he does, he's underrated. Right. And you know, I asked Luke Walton about this, and we posted an interview because that just uh, reminds me of a connection I made with all the Warriors and what they're doing with this historic season and the way they do it in a very intelligent manner, in a very team oriented manner. Um, they, most of their players have played at least two or three years in college. And I don't think it's a coincidence. And I asked Luke Walton about it, and he kind of, you know, sort of half punted the question. But You mean uh, versus going straight from high school into the league? Yeah, or one and done, you know. Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. One yeah. and done has made a big deal, but in reality, there's, there's probably only like, what, like eight or nine one and dones every year out of the 300 and some Division One schools. But still, 
um, you know, usually you're considered damaged goods if you have to play into a third year in college. Like there's something wrong. You're not going to be great. Um, and yet here they are, and, and, they're, and they're able to do this with, you know, Draymond Green, who played, you know, I think four years. And Steph played at least three, if not four. And then uh, uh, Clay Thompson the same way and all these guys. It's, it's really – I don't think it's a coincidence. It's interesting that you say that because I, I tend to look at it kind of differently. It's like I see all these kids either going straight from – high school to the NBA or, you know, doing one year and then, and then choosing to go to the draft is because, um, they want to take care of their families. You know, they want to go for the money. Right. And, you know, and maybe somebody like Steph Curry could afford to stay in college. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, that is okay. That is true. Um, yeah. So I'll, how about I look at it this way from a GM standpoint, if you have a huge pool to choose from, you know, then maybe you'd lean more towards guys who have been in good college programs for longer. Now, that might penalize the one-and-dones, but those one-and-dones are going to get in the league. They are going to get their money, right? And you probably can have a, a successful team with those as well. Uh, I, I would almost just say that, like, when you're talking about historic uh, teams like the Warriors were this year and, and the way they did it, and that's the other thing, is you could be terrific like OKC plays, but they don't play the same way as the Warriors do as far as their, the schemes and the way they build their offense and the way they play. And, you know, there's definitely a little bit of a uneasiness between the camaraderie a lot, a lot of the players. And we've seen that throughout the years even worse than this year. So that, that to me seems like you factor all these things. It's a nice bonus, I suppose, when you, when you, can, when you can get those players who learn in a nice, uh, in, a, in a good college thing. You know what I mean? Or are you going to, do you think that that's not, you think it's, it is coincidence? Um. No, not, not, not necessarily. And I think, I think you're right. And I also think, you know, if you, if you, you know, if I go with that comparison between the Warriors and, and the Thunder right now, like mm-hmm. the Thunder is pretty much based on two stars, right? Ken Durant, Russell, you know, Westbrook, and can they pull it off in the fourth quarter? You know, these past few games, they've been showing everybody that they can even though, you know, the rest of the season, the fourth quarter, they weren't really there. Mm-hmm. But um, it's pretty much them. When you go to the Warriors, even their biggest star, their MVP, is still the underdog. Mm-hmm. You know, like <laughs> Westbrook <laughs> and Kevin Durant still make more than Steph Curry. Yeah. Well, that is true. That And that's a crazy, yeah, which will change soon enough, but yeah. Crazy extension. Uh, the Warriors are, you know, thanking their lucky stars they were able to do it. By the way, and Steph, I'm sure, was happy when he signed it, but uh, I don't think we've ever seen a back-to-back MVP make uh, so little money compared to the rest of the league. It's, it's insane. You know what? I think I was thinking about it this morning, you know, um, about Steph changing the game, and, you know, and that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, he is the MVP and everybody's talking about him and he's the most popular show in town. And, you know, they open, they open the Oracle now 30 minutes earlier so people can see him, you know, training on the court sort of thing. Um, so, um, I, when I was thinking about it this morning, it, I couldn't stop thinking about how in many ways he is very similar to Michael Jordan. You know, if you look at you, even the money thing, because like I, I wrote a few years ago, I wrote something for Calculist about how Michael Jordan has made more money after he retired from basketball. Um, mm-hmm. You know, yeah. mainly from the Air Jordan deal, and that came kind of late. But you know, he didn't make the big money while he was playing. He kind of got compensated for it later. Right. 
And, you know, and also he, he wasn't that kind of like straight out of high school, you're going to be, you know, the biggest star in the league sort of guy. Three you years know, in worked, college. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, he spent three years in college. He worked hard at it. But not only that, you know, um, everybody last night was uh, after, uh, you know, uh, they, they announced uh, Steph Curry as the, you know, and they were discussing and comparing to everybody and saying, you know, back then they were physical and, you know, it was a different game. <laughs> yeah, but in the beginning, Michael was crushed. He wasn't physical enough. He then had to go work on it. You know, he was he was being crushed by the bad boys. They were beating him up. Every time he tried to go into the lane, mm -hmm. he was beat up. Right. What did he do? He realized... I need to build, I need to get stronger. I need to change my physicality. I need to change my game mm -hmm. in order to take myself to the next level because I want to beat LA. I want to beat Boston. I want to beat Detroit. I want to have an NBA, uh, you know, an NBA championship. Steph kind of did the same thing. You know, everybody was saying, you're too small. You're too skinny. Your ankles are this. Yeah. What did he do? He went, he worked on his physicality. Mm -hmm. He went and he worked on other things that are based on physical science, you know, like muscle uh, memory and all that, you know? So in many ways, they are very similar. Oh, yeah. Even, even with the records, their teams are now scoring, you know, 20 years later. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the thing, by the way, really quickly about the training is that he's his trainer who I met and I is going to come on the show as well. Brandon Payne is one of those rare birds who knows everything about functional movement and basketball training. So when I sat down with him and just was chatting with him for a half an hour, he was blowing my mind with like, you know, not only do we have to talk about like the angle of the elbow and the shoulder, whatever, but he's like, I got to make sure that your spine and your this and your, and your, your uh, trapezoid muscle, whatever, are the right flexibility. And all of a sudden I was like, yeah, like that's why some players struggle shooting. It's not that they can't get, like, that they, they don't want to have the right form. It's like their body won't permit them. And if you have a guy like that, it's like an unfair advantage. I would almost think, you know, to Steph. And by the way, they also figured out that if they opened up his hips, he wouldn't sprain his ankles as much. And, uh, you know, maybe 20 wow, years ago. Wow, that's interesting. Oh, yeah. 20 years ago, we wouldn't know about the hips. We didn't know how the importance was. But if your hips are really tight and you put extra strain on your, on your ankles and you actually tend to run on the edge of your feet, which then you can sprain them a lot easier. And when you open your hips up and get a better, uh, you know, uh, planting your foot more solidly in the ground, all of a sudden, like, his ankle problems went away. It's amazing. I want I want to link to this uh, conversation that you had. That sounds fascinating. Oh I, well, I have to get it on record. We were just hanging out at the Warriors practice, and I was just you know oh, okay. chatting. But but get you know on record, dude. I will. I'm going to get on the court with him this summer. We've already talked about it. I'm going to get him on the podcast. So don't worry about that. But for sure, and like you know, he does all that stuff with the light training. You know, the lights in the wall. Have you seen those videos? Um, yeah, actually, um, I've seen that in Israel. Um, uh, somebody that I've known since we were about 16 years old. He, play, he was a professional player in Israel. He was on Team Israel. Then he was a coach. Um, he now develops players. He has this thing called True Player in Israel. And he recently got those lights. So, like, he posts things on Instagram and on Facebook. So he recently got that, which kind of, you know, the, the players have to react to it. Sometimes it's on the floor. Sometimes it's on the walls, right? Is that what you're talking about? Absolutely, yeah. And yeah, it's I've, seen that. I've seen that. It's amazing. And, um, you know, he, he does sometimes um, – uh, he'll post like a shooter and he'll ask, he'll pose like these questions based on 
um, how their feet are positioned in the air and, and all these other things that that's kind of like what you were talking about. Like, you know, if they're not trained to do it, you know, in the begin, you know, from, I don't know, from since they're a kid in that physical way, that might affect their shooting. Absolutely. So, so yeah. he works with, he works with kids and youth to basically develop those skills when they're young, you know, before they, before they develop all the bad habits. Right. Well, that, that, by the way, that's why I'm convinced in 10 years we're going to have 10 Steph Currys. Or, or maybe not exactly like Steph, but we're going to have 10 players in the NBA that can shoot like that off the dribble because they've seen it now as a 10-year-old and they are going to work on it. You know, I, we didn't, we, nobody ever did that when we were growing up. No, I, I was a good three-point shooter. If I had taken a, a three-pointer off, the, off of a fast break, I, I wouldn't have played the rest of the game. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I just, um, I mean, I, I'm not tall, and my dad was a professional player for a few years, like with Maccabi Tel Aviv, and he's not tall, but he had this, like, he had this really, really quick jump shot, where basically he would like stop out of nowhere and throw it, and you know, and sometimes he would be, you know, later on they would bring him to coach high school kids or, and stuff like that to. And so, like, for me, Steph Curry is kind of like, you know, one of those small, skinny yeah. point guards that, you know, can still make it, you know? So, to me, it's kind of like, okay, you don't have to be physical. You just have to be smart. You can, you know, you, yeah. can, get a, you can get around that obstacle with using, you know, whatever god gave you first of all you know there are certain talents you might be quick you might whatever but also yes you can practice dribbling and control the ball better than anybody else can mm -hmm. and you can practice shooting and you know you can find something that if you just do it you can do it better than anybody and that will be your weapon that will be how you overcome the fact that you're not tall, that you're not, you know, big and muscly, you're not a monster like LeBron James. So, you know, okay, so what we can kind of argue halfway is that Steph Curry was a bit of an outsider. Played at Davidson, almost never produces an NBA player. In fact, he might be the only one. Uh, granted, he, can't, he comes from an NBA family, so he wasn't really an outsider. But um, the, another outsider who we can talk about is, was David Blatt. And when he came into the Cleveland Cavaliers to coach, it was before LeBron had committed, even though there definitely seemed to be smoke and, and mirrors, you know, little smoke signals coming up about it. But so, you know, his job description changed overnight, but he was never accepted. And there was this notion of an outsider on a lot of different levels. And I kind of wanted to hear your take on it from considering your background, um, because there's a few things. A, he was not, he's not, I mean, he's American, but not necessarily because he hasn't really been in America for a long time. And he's, you know, so you can call him Israeli, let's just say, Jewish, um, white. Um, and, I, and I almost feel like it, it worked against him just on this, his surface appearance and what he was that they never accepted him. Did you ever, what are your feelings on that? Well, I think um, not only did they never accept him, I think nobody ever gave him a chance. Right. Um, you know, I think there's something that even I've experienced personally, you know, moving to New York is that there's something very close in certain circles in America, meaning you can do a lot of really impressive things, but if you haven't done it in America, nobody cares. It doesn't count. Mm -hmm. And I think that's um, kind of what happened with David for, you know, when... Um, 
even before LeBron came to Cleveland, just because, like, out of the blue, there was this head coach that, you know, nobody really heard about, nobody really knew, and and let's face it, you know, the average American reporter, analyst, sports fan knows nothing about European basketball. Right. So can't really have any respect for it either if you don't know anything about it. Um, and I think that's – they wrote him off in a way. Um, so I think he didn't really have a chance, especially then, you know, when all of a sudden LeBron came, comes into the picture and he's the biggest superstar in the world and, you know, and, and something – I don't know exactly what happened there because, you know, you would think if it was that bad – they wouldn't have let him start the second season. Right, right. Very confusing. And, you know, to be number one in the conference, doing very well, uh, you know, it just it just reeked of – I mean, I'm always going to be obviously partial to the coach and, and sympathetic to the coach. Uh, and then if you throw the fact that he's Israeli and all those different things, like that's probably making it even more. Because here's the ultimate irony. When you watch them play now, they're running more of Blatt's offense – Oh my God! Yes, yes. Thank you. That's like every you know. I keep seeing this like ridiculous three points, you know, shooting going on, and I'm like, that's Maccabi Tel Aviv, (laughs) right? You know, right? High post action, dribble pitch, like a lot of the Princetony stuff and the ball movement. Uh, so, so the question then was, and I, I was on Twitter ranting about it. And I did a big, you know, a huge, we, I think we were talking about it, a, a breakdown I did about it, which was, um, it just didn't make any sense. It's like almost in spite of him. Okay. We, like, they recognized that what he was coaching was good, but simply refused to do it because it, because it was him. Like, you know what I mean? That was, it's just, it goes beyond like what as a professional. You're supposed to a, you know, respect the coach anyway, but to go to, to, to fire him and then say, okay, everything he, he talked about was great. We're going to do it now. It's just beyond. Yeah, like, oh, you know what? Uh, he actually made some sense. So let's do what he said. Right. And, you know, and so, okay, they weren't happy, right? They weren't all smiles and giggles in, in the locker room. I think that was what Griffin was trying to talk about when he, when he fired him. But, uh, okay, I guess. It's not, this is not an AAU. This is not, an, you know, seventh grade basketball. This is, you know. Not everyone's always going to be, you know, shits and giggles the whole time in, in the locker room. I mean, I, I agree, but I think, um, you know, Blatt, David Blatt has had a very interesting journey. I mean, in many ways, he, he, you know, when he came to Israel and even, you know, after he'd been there for a very long time, he was still considered a foreigner there, too. Oh, really? He's American. Oh. You know, he, <laughs> he, has, he has an accent in his Hebrew. You know, he wasn't born there. Um, so he had that too. And, um, the first year he was head coach of Maccabi, the fans were booing him, calling him to be fired. He was not a good season. It wasn't the worst Maccabi season, but it wasn't a good one. Um, and they ended up bringing Pini Gershon back who they won, um, titles with. He was his assistant coach. They ended up bringing Pini back and David went back to being an assistant coach. Oh. And I think, um, you know, when that happened, I think he kind of felt, okay, I need to get out and accomplish things elsewhere so I can get that respect mm-hmm. and kind of come back. And he did, you know, it's like everywhere he went, he was successful, you know, and with Russia and Italy, every, everywhere he went, he was successful and he came back 
And he ended up winning a title all by himself as well, right before he came to Cleveland. But And I think in, in many ways, like you said in the beginning, that he's American, but he spent his entire adult life in Israel. His entire professional life is there. And also, I think kind of observing the interactions he had with the media and how, you know, especially the local Cleveland media, they did not like him. Hmm. They really didn't like him. And I think part of that was he's, he became too Israeli for his own good. <laughs> okay. You know, like he assimilated too much into Israel. Now, Israeli press can be very aggressive. And... Um, and I think he, he was so used to having to be on guard that he brought that with him. And, and I think also in, in Israel and the Middle East in general, there's a bit of a culture of the land of the ego. Um, and I think he might have, he might have, you know, just assimilated too much mm-hmm. and brought that with him. You know, he might have, he might have reacted to all the disrespect in a bit of in a bit of like um i don't know sometimes they say that when you're insecure you tend to like pretend that you're all this and all that yeah so i think you know maybe maybe he didn't react all that well to being disrespected instead of you know maybe trying to earn respect in a different way yeah um i mean i don't know i don't know exactly what went on in the locker room i don't know exactly what went on with the, you know, with the press, although I did, I did write a piece about it and I did speak to some of the guys and they were very open. Some even said that, you know, kind of mid season, it was clear that David was an asshole. That is a quote. Um, you know, so that, that's something that, you know, if, if, if within six months of you coming here, that's what the people are covering, covering you are saying, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if you, if you look now at, He's, his name is coming up with all these different teams, right? The Knicks and Sacramento and whatever, but like everybody's shutting it down. Right. It's interesting. Yeah, it's kind of quiet the last several days, at least, as Jaeger has taken in over in the, with the Kings and stuff. So, um, yeah, you know, you're right. He might have he might have been that that asshole who like just you know burned the bridge before he had a chance to build it uh, in a way. Um, I just I just kind of found it very strange, especially in the, when you get fired in the middle of the year. It's it's usually reserved for the guys who have, you know, again, lost the locker room would be one thing. And, it, and I, I guess it sounded a little bit like that. And like out of the woodwork, some of the guys from last year were, you know, trying to, to, to pile on. And I don't know. All I know is that, you know, it, it should, what should. Yeah, is, yeah, you're right. Brent, Brandon Haywood was like speaking yeah. on Sports Center like an hour after the announcement came out. He was already like talking about all these things that happened. And it was like. Yeah. What? Like, what? Were you just waiting? <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it was weird. And I mean, I guess the, quite, quite honestly, it was LeBron. Like LeBron, you know, didn't like him, didn't want him. We we saw him shove him out of the way, uh, you know, in, in, very disrespectfully in the middle of the game once when he was talking to the referees. Um, and I, I guess that was my issue was always that they never really even you're supposed to meet him halfway when you become, a, you know, just got traded to the Cleveland Cavaliers or going back. There should be some, you know, you should reach out and be and move halfway toward the coach and the coach can move halfway to you. And I just feel like that never happened. And it sounded like there was some scheming at somewhat early on to get him out of there anyway. And whoops, they made it to the finals. They got almost to the game seven. So you can't quite do it yet. 
Um, you know, it's just too bad. And I, and I worry that it's like a thing where, you know, is David Black going to have a stain now that's going to make it difficult to get hired again? Exactly. I mean, you know what? Like a lot of people are looking back and saying, you know, he should have taken that assistant coaching job with Steve Kerr at the Warriors and, you know, and kind of done that. But with that said, you know, I, I was listening. I think I don't know if it was Stephen A. Smith or Skip Bayless. They were talking about like who's going to replace Popovich in San Antonio. And Atura Messina's name did not come up. Really? Yes. In their in their discussion. Huh. And to me, it was it was it was like once again, it was like okay, you're dissing the foreigner. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. I, I've interviewed Messina. My dad coached to get like my dad beat him when I don't know I was twelve or thirteen and some European whatever. Like he's one of the most impressive coaches you have ever seen. Mm-hmm. Not not just the basketball he knows, but the respect he, he's able to command on, you know, players and, you know, you know, European teams, they're very mixed with, you know, the right. locals, Americans and other Europeans. So you're dealing with different mentalities and you're dealing with different egos and you're dealing with people who just move to a new place and need to, you know, um, kind of understand what's going on in different languages. So you're also dealing with, you know, you're a bit of a psychologist and a father at times to some of these guys. But he, he just has basketball that is just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And this kind of this demeanor that just kind of he commands respect in a way. Yeah. And the players respond to it. So, I mean, but even he, he's been, this is what, like his third year as an assistant coach? Because he was also at the Lakers. Yeah, right. right. By the way, is it Siska or CSKA? How do you say that team from Moscow? Cheska. Is it, it's Cheska? I well, can't that's, the, that's where we say where we come from. All like, right, I'm going to do it. Uh, we call it Cheska. I've had people say every different way, and, and no one will give it to me. So it's Cheska. Because, by, by the way, the Ettore Messina story was that he was an assistant with Mike Brown and then got the hell out of there and took um, Quinn Snyder with him to go coach Cheska for a year and then came back. So, uh, which is another book that I would love, hope someone would write to tell all about what happened that year because Messina and Snyder were on, like, the, on the top of the list for like, assistants that would get uh, interviewed for head coaching jobs. If you're at the top of that list, you don't just leave <laughs> to, to, go play, to go coach in Europe again for a year. I mean, I, normally I wouldn't. I mean, I know Cheska is a, is a, is a good job, but it, something happened. It's, it's one of the top ones. It's one of the yeah. top jobs in Europe. Well, something must have happened is all I'm telling you, that they had to get out of there before. I mean, maybe they knew Mike Brown was going to get fired or something. But, um, I mean, I know it's one of the top jobs, but if they were in line, and they, they were back then, even Quinn Snyder, too, was in line to be interviewing, you know, the last thing I would imagine, if that's what your goal is, is to leave the country uh, you know, it, 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 just, it, it was a little bit weird. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to find out one day if we can to get some dirt about what happened with that because, uh, you know, Kobe and Mike Brown. But, um, well, you know, you mentioned a little bit about your father playing in Israel and growing up uh, with a, a basketball coach and for a father. Is that sort of what got you into the whole basketball realm? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I, I, was, I was pretty much born um, less than a year after my dad won the European Cup with Maccabi Tel Aviv. Oh, now, by the oh. way, your dad is, he's not Jewish? Uh, he converted for my mom, but he was not born Jewish, no. Okay, so then how did he I, get to Israel? To start, he, just, how did that opportunity even come up then? I mean, normally you hear like, you, um, know, you know, Jewish American good players will go and play for Maccabi, except for the random he, like Gene Banks signing or something. He went there by mistake. Oh. He, um, 
He was he was playing uh, for Columbia. He went to Columbia on a basketball scholarship. Okay. And um, he went traveling. He took a semester off and he went traveling. And um, he was in Spain. It was about January, and he thought, oh well, it's too cold to in New York right now. I don't want to go back to that. And he had some friends that played with him in Colombia that were Jewish and they played in Israel. So he just got on a plane and went there. And he didn't have much to do, so he'd go with them to practice. And um, and so the team there, Maccabi um, Ramad Gan, they were like, okay, this guy can play. And they signed him. Huh. Um, two, three years later, Maccabi Tel Aviv bought him in a trade. And, you know, in the 76-77 season... They won the European final for the first time. They beat Cheska in a historic game. Wow. Um, and all that is actually being uh, put together in a movie in English called On the Map, based oh. on a quote from this massive game that they beat Cheska. Uh, the Russian team would not host the Israeli team. They would not come to Tel Aviv. Um, and then all of a sudden, Maccabi beat Real Madrid. And Cheska and this other team were like, wait a minute, uh, if we if we disqualify, we're going to be out of this, so we need to play them. So they agreed to play them in Belgrade. Maccabi won both games. Huh. Wow. Um, and the game was like a blowout. And the captain of the team, Tal Brody, American, um, he had this amazing quote at the end. He said in Hebrew, we're on the map and we're staying on the map and not just in sports. And that is like, there's not an Israeli alive who does not know that quote in Hebrew. So that's now the title of a documentary that's like being put together as we speak. Like David Stern was recently interviewed. Bill Walton was recently interviewed. It's called On the Map. Wow. Um, I, I'm so, assuming your dad was interviewed too. Yes, he was. Okay. Um, so I was like, I was a baby when all this was happening or like being, a, or a fetus, I guess, and then a baby. Um, <laughs> okay. And then we moved to the States. So, like, when I was a kid, I had no idea that my dad had played or anything. Um, he got, he went and got a PhD at Yale University. So, as far as I was considered, he was this book geek, wow. English professor, person. Um, but he loved basketball. Like, the Boston Celtics were always on TV. Um, <laughs> always. You know, it was the early 80s. So, that was, you know, the best show in town. And then uh, I found out later on, we moved to Israel, and I found out that he used to play, and, you know, and he was kind of famous, and, you know, and I never really knew about it. Um, and then, you know, he was, he was coaching, and, you know, I was hanging around basketball, and, and I guess, you know, I, I would go to practice with my dad, and, you know, I had an entire professional team at my bat mitzvah. So, <laughs> <laughs> wow. so I, you know, I was always around it. Um, and my best friend, the same guy with the light system, Yeah. Um, he, one of his first seasons when he played pro, I went to his games just like I would in high school. And um, one of the reporters that was waiting for him outside, he came up to me and he said, uh, we're looking for um, a sideline reporter for the high school games. Would you like to come and, you know, and be interviewed? And I was like, why me? And he said, well, I know you know basketball. And I know you've done a few commercials, so you're not intimidated of being in front of a camera. Okay. So come for a meeting. And I was like, okay. So I went for the meeting, and the guy's like, have you ever interviewed anybody before? I was, I was 19, 20 years old. It's like, have you ever interviewed anybody before? No. Have you done live television before? No. Have you ever worked with an earpiece before? I was like, no. 
if you listen to the coach during a timeout, can you repeat that in your own words? I was like, yeah. I said, okay, you're on air on Wednesday. <laughs> okay. That's how I started. Wow. So you're doing live? That's crazy that Israel you Live sideline reporting. But what, what level were we talking about? That was high school. Wow. High school so, okay. in Israel. And the next season, I was already at the Israeli Sports Channel doing all the professional leagues and the European leagues and all that. Wow. Okay. That, that's a terrific uh, way to get in the, into the business. Um, I, actually, <laughs> I, I traveled to Israel. I remember I played a little bit in, uh, in like pickup games around town when I was there for like a week and, uh, you know, really, really enjoyed it. It was fun because I got to be like, I don't know, this is like 1992. Um, you know, it, it, it was okay. It was, it was probably not as good as here. I mean, again, it was just like pickup or whatever. Because although the funny thing was, nineteen ninety two, we just got cable television like a year before that. Okay, we didn't even have McDonald's yet in Israel. Wow. Well, I remember the the, the people I stayed with loved the NBA, but uh, of course couldn't get any footage for your life of them. So I was able to find a company that would send videotapes of highlights of the NBA every like. Oh week. wow. Yeah, so as a gift to them for letting me stay with them for a week, I like I found it. And I I got them sent. I think they got it. It had to be PAL, right? Remember NTSC versus PAL, which no one probably even knows about anymore. Um, although the funny thing is, the Sport View, the cameras around, like you know, is all is an Israeli company, and that is why it is twenty five frames per second when they shoot it because it's PAL. And I love it when they report it like it's this, you know, special version of whatever. I'm like, no, they just did the European version of video, which is, you know, um, which is funny because then, you know, anyway. So, um, so you're, so, okay, so you're, you're in Israel, you're reporting on, on basketball. Uh, is the style of basketball any different there than you'd say it is here? Um, for sure. Um, and, and I think, it's not even just in the actual basketball. It's also in the entire environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if you've, have you ever been to like a European game? I do. I went to Maccabi Tel Aviv. I saw that, by the way, that's where I ran into Gene Banks, who was, uh, who was a former bull. And I grew up, you know, kind of like, you know, as a fan of his and he was wandering around injured, but he was on the team, I believe Uh, this was yeah 92. So um, anyway, so I did go see a game. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was really amazing and energetic and fun. I, I'm not sure I can even remember like exactly how it was. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of, you know, European like drive and kick, uh, a lot of passing, maybe defense wasn't as stressed, right? I mean, am I anywhere near with what I'm talking about? Well, I think, I think the defense is more stressed maybe like in the, maybe in the European games versus the Israeli league ah. and maybe more towards how it, you know, how it narrows down into the Euro leagues, I guess you would say playoff. Mm-hmm. or a sweet 16 or, or whatever but the atmosphere is definitely much more intense like if you go to an nba game after being used to going to games in europe it's really quiet mm-hmm. right it's really, you know it's like it's really weird at an nba game you know like even the playoffs are quiet compared to european game right because in europe or you know israeli games there's always like the diehard fans. They do not sit down. They're always chanting and dancing. And like I remember, there was a final four between Panathinaikos and Olympiakos, but it was in Tel Aviv um, when I was in high school. So that was just like maybe a few years after you were there in '92. Okay. And they had to change, like replace about 100, 200 chairs in the Maccabi Tel Aviv arena because the Greek fans were just you know, jumping up and down on them the entire game. Wow. Um, and they probably have noisemakers too, like a little bit like soccer, right? 
Yeah, they have noisemakers. I mean, I remember back in the day, you would go to games in Greece and they smoke in the arena. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now, is that is that legal in in Israel, or is smoking indoors banned? No, 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 not not at all. Like that, Greece is like a bit too the extreme with that. Like in Saloniki, they'll they'll throw food at you and stuff at the court. Wow. It's like it, it's it's a it's yeah it's a bit more extreme. But in Israel, I mean, some of the soccer games may get a bit more heated. But they there have been recent incidents between say Maccabi Tel Aviv and Apollo Tel Aviv, where like the fans just you know. They go a bit crazy. They take it a bit too far. You know, if in the beginning of the conversation we started talking about, you know, people online and, you know, people that comment or on, on Twitter, how people take this very passionately and get really, really mad. And I think even sports fans, you know, sports is kind of like a religion when you think about it. You know, you and I have this weird kind of point of view where we can sit back and we can talk about it. And, you know, and we may have a team that, you know, we, we may grew up kind of as a fan, but like we're more kind of on the outside looking on, you know, versus right. like somebody who's a fan who has their team and every week they're going to watch that team and they're going to go to that game and they're going to sing those songs and they only have that team's jerseys. They would never be caught with any other team or any other player. Right. Um, and. You know, and when you think about, okay, like if you're Jewish, you go to a synagogue on Saturday, and if you're Christian, you're going to go to church on Sunday, and if you're Muslim, you're going to go to the mosque, and, you know, et cetera, with all the other religions. But in sports, so you go once a week to your stadium, arena, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you put your special clothes on, you meet the same people there, you have a preacher, the announcer maybe in the gym or something, right? you know. And, and you get up and you sit down, just like you do. Yeah, exactly. And you do it every week or yeah. a few times a week, depending on, you know, where, where you are and where the sports are. Um, and I think that's why people get so passionate about it, whether it's, you know, jumping up and down on the chairs or fighting with fans and getting into violent fights mm -hmm. or, you know, the commentary on online. It's, it's very intense. And I think Israelis... Um, and, and Europeans when it comes to sports in general we're not as conservative or buttoned up as Americans so the emotions kind of fly and I think those kind, those things affect the game you know like in many ways um, the fans can be the sixth player of a team right yeah and we see that in Oracle, by the way. So, I mean, I think the closest approximation might be Oracle Arena when Steph is doing what he's doing. You know, it does start to cook in there and, you know, everyone is up and cheering. And it's loud. Uh, I, I grew up in Chicago Stadium, which was as loud as any North American uh, arena. Uh, again, it wasn't the constant, right, like you're talking about. But when it did get loud, it really they went on a run. Uh, you know, there, there's nothing better than that. And I feel like in, the, in today's arenas, the way they're designed, they just don't capture the same sound. It's hard. You know, Oracle might be the last bastion of like those old ones. And the, the funny thing is they didn't even know what they were doing. The Chicago Stadium was the loudest uh, arena without even knowing about acoustics. They just kind of built the thing and then, oh, whoops, it happens to be loud. Um, and you go there now to, to the uh, to whatever United Center in, in Chicago. And it's, you know, it's it's not it's just not the same. It's not nearly as loud. It's not as intense. And um, it's too bad. I feel like there's a lot of kids now growing up who, you know, have missed out on that experience of, 
you know, even if it's a little dank and dingy in there and kind of old school, there was something really kind of noble about going to that arena and cheering and being part of that that I don't know if we still have anymore. No, it's fun. It's I mean, uh, even Maccabi Tel Aviv had this legendary announcer who would only do their European games at one point um, because that's when, like, the biggest crowd would come on Thursday nights and, you know, it would have ridiculous ratings on television. And they would get fined and they wouldn't care because <laughs> technically the announcer, you're not allowed to really, you know, say something. You're supposed to say, stay neutral, right? Right, right. announce certain things. You can't really say, you know... Let's go Maccabi or right. something like in your that, face. right? <laughs> or in Hebrew, Yala Maccabi. But, you know, they, it was worth it for them to mm. get these fines because <laughs> he would get the crowd crazy. Wow. You know, and um, and I think that's that's something that, you know, it it, it really does change the game. Like, um, you know, Sergei... Uh, Belov, I think his name was, like the, the former Russian, Russian captain. Right. He played on the Cheska team that, you know, the legendary Maccabi Tel Aviv team that my dad played on, um, that they beat. And Tal Brody told me just recently, I was talking to him on the phone, and he said, you know, that he met Belov one day, and they were talking about the game. And, you know, and Belov said, everybody but the KGB was rooting for you guys in that room, you know, in that in that gym that night. It was like, you know, it was, it was, it was as if you were in Tel Aviv and you know what Brody said and my dad has said and some of the other guys you know it was like that lit them up you know the fact that they came out and they saw these Israeli flags and you know and the crowd was chanting and you know it gave them this energy that you know they made this amazing you know David versus Goliath win against the Red Army team yeah Wow, uh, that's uh, you know what? Maybe you'll we'll have to have your dad on the show to talk more about that because that sounds, uh, I, I'm a big history of basketball buff, and I, I would love to hear more about that. But I actually wrote about that for Tablet. I'll send you a link later. Is, in English? Yes, in English. Okay, good. Because my Hebrew is very rusty, and I, I might be able to sound it out, but I might not know what it says. <laughs> <laughs> no, this one is in English, so don't worry. Terrific. Well, uh, you know, Becky, I can't thank you enough for coming on and you really giving us some really cool insight into a lot of things. This is definitely a unique podcast uh, talking about stuff that we don't normally hear on, in the world of sports. So uh, I'm really happy that you could be part of this, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, and I'm um, happy I could share something worth of any kind of value. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Well, uh, don't forget, sports fans, that B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Becky? I, I, I'm in a long time ago. I, I've been in for, like, ever. Awesome. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like, Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you can save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your mood. 
This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win 25 grand. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participating stores. 